This episode of the Kona Shame Veterinary Podcast is sponsored and brought to you ad-free by the fine, fine folks at Elanco. Elanco is a global animal health leader committed to innovating to improve the health of animals and advocate for customers while creating value through innovative products, expertise, and service. Elanco's promise is based on its vision of food and companionship enriching life and is dedicated to advancing the health of animals, people, and the planet. Visit elanco.com to learn more. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Cone of Shame Veterinary Podcast. Guys, I got a great one today on some really cool uh, research that you're going to use. You're going to talk about this. You're going to say it to pet owners. You're going to talk to your staff about it. You're going to be like, hey, did you know? And you're going to talk about the dog park study. The dog park study is fantastic. It is super useful. It is conversational. It is interesting to pet owners. And it hammers home the need for um, for parasite control. Guys, I'm not going to go too much more into this other than to say uh, thanks to uh, Dr. Susan Little for being here and for being an incredible person. I talk about her uh, her background a little bit on the podcast. So without further ado, let's just get into this. This is your show. We're glad you're here. We want to help you in your veterinary career. Welcome to the Cone of Shame with Dr. Andy Rourke. Welcome back to the Cone of Shame. Guys, I have uh, got one of my uh, one of my veterinary idols, Dr. Susan E. Little, is here today. Thank you for being here, Dr. Little. Oh, I'm happy to be here with you. Thanks so much, Andy, and the admiration is shared. Oh, you're too kind. But so for for people who don't know you, I'll I'll do a a little bit more robust bio for you probably in the in the opening to the show. But just if you guys don't know, Dr. Susan Little is a parasitologist at Oklahoma State University. She um she's amazing. She has uh, been the president of the Companion Animal Parasite Council, as well as the American Association of Veterinary Parasitologists. Uh, she is a phenomenal lecturer. The uh, the awards that she has on her bio that I will just tell you, Susan, are um, I am most impressed by. I, there's a, I know a couple of people who have these awards and I am always just super crazy impressed. You got not once, but twice the Excellence in Teaching Award from the National Student uh, AVMA. And so I, I just think that, that is the coolest award because the vet students uh, across the country said that, uh, that you were an amazing teacher. And I just, I can't, I, I, did that, did, was that, how, how many, like, how did you receive that award? Did it, did it register with you? Like what that really meant um, as far as the impact that you're having? That's, that's the part that's so cool to me. Yeah, it's mind blowing. The vet students are incredible. I've been teaching veterinary students for 25 years now, and I remain amazed at the yeah. future of our profession. It is in such good hands. Well, I've seen you lecture a couple of times and, and you you really are a fantastic lecturer. I, I recommend that people see you. I want to talk to you about something that I saw you lecture on. Uh, a, it's been a, a little while back before the world went crazy. Um, and, but I wanted, I wanted to do this for a long time. You have a publication that came out that is uh, simply known in the industry as the dog park study. Can you talk a little bit about, about what that is, what you set out to do and kind of how it works? Yeah, for sure. So we were interested in trying to figure out what the prevalence of parasites is in dogs across the U.S. And that seems like such an obvious question. Like we should know what percent of dogs are infected with intestinal parasites in the U.S. And yet a lot of our data comes from either shelters, which are dogs that maybe haven't received veterinary care yet before mm -hmm. arrival at the shelter, 
or it comes from really well cared for pet dogs that get to go to the veterinarian year after year that are on preventives that are taken good care of. Right. But we didn't really know what about a cross section of just dogs in the US, like what percent of them have parasites? And we just realized that dog parks are the perfect way to go collect samples from a random assortment of pet dogs. They're definitely yeah. pets. Somebody loves them. They're taking them to the dog park to play with them, but they may or may not be receiving veterinary care. They may not be on preventives. And that would give us a really good snapshot into what we're up against in terms of parasites. So, so how many, how many dog parks did you sample from across the U.S.? So we ended up going to 288 dog parks in 30 different metro areas, which is staggering even to me. Now, yeah. I didn't visit all those dog parks. It was veterinarians at Elenco and IDEX and Oklahoma State University that fanned out across the country, went and talked to owners, over 3,000 dogs, got consent from the owners to ask them some questions about their dogs. <laughs> Before I get... take your poop, can you find, sign this? Exactly. Can you so sign you this poop over to me? Yeah, it's as awkward as you're thinking or more so, right? You show up at the dog park without a dog, so you're already that person. And then you ask the owner, hey, you know, are you done with that? As they're approaching the trash can. And then you say, can I ask you some questions about your dog? So we had to had to build that rapport, use the, those communication skills that veterinarians are so good with and really get the owners to understand what we were trying to do. But once they knew what we wanted to do, they were very enthusiastic, as you know, dog owners love to talk about their dogs. Yeah. And so they definitely wanted to hear more. That's that's awesome. I, I love it. Yeah. Well, let's get into it. Prevalence across the United States. These are these are dog park dogs. Uh, these are dogs that people care enough to put in the car and take to the dog park and spend time with. So surely the prevalence of intestinal parasites at dog parks is low. Yeah, so not so much. Um, we expected <laughs> to find parasites, but even I was surprised that over 20% of the dogs we tested, and we just tested them one time, one day at the dog park, over 20% of them were positive for one or more parasites. So, and that's a single fecal sample. Right. That's one sample, just, hey, here we are. We'd like to do this. Yeah. And when we dug into the data, it was even more surprising because most of those dogs were adult dogs. 88% of them were over one year of age. So that's the group we think of as, you know, they start to have some immunity, their risk mm. of infection goes down a bit, and still it was over 20%. And then on a dog park basis, it was 85% of the dog parks that we visited had at least one infected dog, often two or three or four infected dogs that day. Now we only collected samples from 10 dogs per park. And then we moved on to another dog park in that metro area because we wanted to spread it out geographically, what parks we were visiting, where we were collecting samples. And so you can imagine if we had collected from 20 dogs or 30 dogs at a park, right. I think we would have found parasites at all the dog parks. Yeah, I, I, th I, think that that's, I think that that's one of the big take homes. This is why I really want to unpack this with you is this is such great information and insight for veterinarians and vet technicians to have to throw out in the conversation. You know, I, I think a lot of times, um, I think a lot of times we struggle with the idea, the perception that maybe intestinal parasite control is not all that important, or it's not all really, it's kind of that, uh, my dog doesn't go outside, so I don't need flea prevention type stuff. It's like, my dog is fine. He, he eats great dog food. Right. And that's, and that's sort of the, the rationale. And this is, this is really a, a beautiful arrow in the quiver to say, you know, hey, there was this study and 85% of dog parks had uh, a pet, a pet. Yeah, had, absolutely. And what you're saying is so true. I hear from my own family members, people that adore me and love me and know I'm a veterinarian, 
they'll say, I don't need to use that flea control anymore. I've been using it for two years and I haven't seen a flea. Yeah. And, you know, you have to sort of talk to them about, and that's why you haven't seen a flea because you've been using it. And if you stop, the parasites will come back. The same is true for intestinal parasites. We have got to, they, the Companion Animal Parasite Council, CAPC, the mantra is every dog, every month, all year long. And if we let off that, that um, pressure on the parasites, the parasites come right back. Let me do, first of all, just let me say how validated I feel that you, Susan Little, DVM, PhD, boarded, boarded uh, internal medicine uh, parasitologist, have family members who question your medical expertise, <laughs> because I just, I we're heading into the holidays, and I can already feel it coming. Yeah, it's the universal, I think, in veterinary medicine is that <laughs> our clients trust us, our family, hmm, sometimes. <laughs> My mom has tried to send me to her vet many times for advice, because she's great. <laughs> well, thanks, <laughs> thanks, mom. Um, so yeah, okay. I love it. Let's, let's unpack this. Let, let's start to get into it. What uh, top parasites that we're seeing, what are we looking out for? What uh, prevalence wise did we learn? So the top three intestinal parasites we found were hookworms, whipworms, and giardia. And of course, two of those three, hookworms and whipworms, we can control with monthly parasite control. And so that was disappointing, not surprising. Those are the mm -hmm. two that we see most commonly in adult dogs in all surveys whether it's pet dogs, shelter dogs, hookworms, and whipworms. We do see a lot of roundworms, a lot of ascarids in puppies, but generally by the time they get to be adults, we're seeing fewer roundworm infections, even though it can still happen. And so it wasn't too surprising that it was hookworms, whipworms, and then I think Giardia is the bane of every veterinarian's existence, and so yeah. we certainly can understand why that was common. Do you, do you think that, uh, so this is my, always my question with Giardia, uh, do you think these pet owners were seeing signs at home? I mean, we, we generally think of Giardia as diarrhea dogs, things like that. Are these asymptomatic shedders? Is that what you're thinking? Yeah, most of them are asymptomatic shedders. That's definitely my impression. We see so much Giardia infection and then a smaller group with Giardia disease. And most Giardiasis that we see where the dogs have diarrhea, those are usually 12 months and younger. So okay. it's less common to see clinical Giardiasis in adult dogs. There's just a lot of Giardia being shed in the world. That's true in dogs and cats and people. Um, so many of us collectively, human animal us, are infected and shedding Giardia. And yet most of us don't develop clinical disease until we do. And then you mm -hmm. need the treatment and the, the effort to get that cleared up. Did you ask uh, pet owners if they're on uh, some sort of monthly uh, parasite preventative? We did. In fact, we just asked them two questions about parasites, and that was one of them. Are you using something, parasite control medication? And about 65% said yes, they were. Okay. Now, we didn't check their medical records. We didn't call right. their yeah, yeah. We have no idea. That's total owner-reported data. But when we, when we took the answer to that question, if they said yes, we're using parasite control, and then we looked at prevalence for hookworms and whipworms, it was significantly reduced. So just the owner believing they're doing parasite control is enough for a really significant reduction in parasitism. And so I take that to mean if they said, yes, they're doing something for parasite control, many of them probably are, but at least yeah. they have a relationship with a veterinarian who has told them they should be doing parasite control. So they knew the right answer to the question. And yeah. that, that, that alone translated to lower prevalence of infection. Oh, sure. I mean, it, 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 it totally makes sense. I was kind of curious. If you're like hundred percent said, yes, I, I was, I was wondering if we get over, uh, over reporting and under, uh, and underutilization, but no, it's it sounds like uh, like that's a beneficial question to ask. Yeah. Okay. What um, what are your takeaways from this study? I mean, what do we do? So, as veterinarians, as sort of uh, public health stewards, as as people who are just trying to do, do what's best for pets, and then also you know for our communities, 
what are the takeaways from the study? I mean, were, were there insights into uh, approaches that might be helpful? Is there a larger community communication program that kind of needs to be underway? Uh, I guess, yeah, when you saw these results and you really thought about what does this mean for veterinarians, what did you kind of come away with? Well, yeah, a few different things. One is that I knew dog parks were popular. I had no idea how popular they were. It's the fastest growing segment of the urban park population. Dog owners love dog parks. Whole communities love dog parks because it means that dogs and their owners go to dog parks instead of using other playgrounds that might be better suited for human kids rather mm -hmm. than dog kids. And so um, that was really interesting. But we also we also strongly suspect, and we need more data. Every research project ends with more data are needed. But we need more data on this. But it's not just the dog parks, right? There's parasites common in pet dogs writ large across the U.S. We went to dog parks because that was an easy way to collect the samples, but I suspect if we had just been able to go door to door and collect samples from pet dogs, we would have found similar prevalence of infection. And so it's dogs that are picking up parasites on their nightly walk with their owner around the neighborhood. It's mm -hmm. dogs that are going to dog daycare and to groomers and to boarding kennels. It's dogs that have any access to areas shared with other dogs have an opportunity to become infected. And so that's really why we need to keep doing what we do and encouraging routine use of monthly parasite control because dogs live in the world. So they're gonna get infected and then they're gonna get reinfected. And it's just an ordinary experience of a dog to become infected with hookworms and whipworms. And that's why we need to make sure they're protected from those intestinal parasites with the monthly control. Well, let's talk about parasite testing in the vet clinics right now, if, if you don't mind me sort of turning it a little bit that way. So away yeah. from the park. So we've got these dogs coming into our practices. They, um, they're going to dog parks, you know, they're out in the world, they're doing these things. I, I think that the, the study shows us, you know, 20% of these dogs probably coming in, probably have some sort of internal uh, parasite, which is which pretty well matches up to kind of what we see in practices, why we run annual fecal exams. Yeah. Well, how does it affect your, your views on what we should be doing in practice? Are we, are we over testing? Are we under testing? Uh, you know, like, are we, should we be doing, uh, a, should there be more testing that we're doing? Like, what are your, what are your thoughts there? Has this affected what you think is a sort of standard wellness protocol and practices? Well, definitely routine testing, which I know a lot of practices try to do, but understandably, you know, when we tell owners, they schedule their annual wellness exam and then they're told, be sure to bring in a fecal sample people don't want to do that. Who wants to take feces and put it in their car and drive right. with it right to the practice? That can be a, a hurdle. So some of the labs now actually offer mailers. You can, you can give the client a sample box. They take it home, collect the sample in the backyard. It goes directly in their mailbox. It never comes in their home and they, it gets shipped to the lab and the results are sent back to the veterinarian who then has those results and can put them in the medical record and treat as necessary. So, so trying to be more creative about strategies like that to get over what's understandably distasteful about having your dog checked for parasites. I, I want to ask you something that's going to get me in trouble in my, uh, in my regular work life. Fecal loops that are still in use in practices, uh, are they, uh, are they, are they beneficial? Are we getting any sort of results that are worthwhile? Yeah. I just, I just, since we're talking about, about, collection methods i just want to i i see them and i have my own feelings so i, I want to see I, i'm curious as to what your thoughts are yeah not a fan most parasitologists wouldn't be a fan of fecal loops because the sample size is not adequate for a true screening you really want to get that four gram fecal sample collection and so i have a, a colleague and friend in practice in tulsa oklahoma and he estimated that you would have to use a fecal loop on a cat 50 times in order to withdraw 
four grams of feces to send it off to the lab. And I think we would all agree that that's not, that's not healthy for the veterinary cat relationship, right? Let alone the cat going to the practice relationship. So it's always better to try and get avoided sample, but then you do need buy-in from the owner to do that. And that creates another set of challenges. Are there uh, areas in practice, uh, in sort of general practice where we are overlooking parasites and you think that they play a role in, uh, in clinical pathology. I mean, are, are there, are there cases where you feel like people are, are not looking for parasites and they should be areas where we're, we're missing diagnoses that are actually affecting what's going on with our patients. Uh, are, are there tricks like that, that we're missing where we're just simply not looking? Yeah, absolutely. So the passive fecal floats that are done just by sitting at like on the counter with sodium nitrate solution and letting gravity raise the eggs up, those are known to be insensitive, especially okay. in well-cared for pets that have lower rates of parasitism. So really a centrifugal flotation needs to be done. For a lot of practices, that's challenging. So they'll partner with a diagnostic lab to get that done. We also know that um, we've always known that prepatent or non-patent infections can't be detected. If there's no eggs, we're not going to find them. And so some of the labs now have antigen tests that are available that will pick up not just Giardia antigen, which we've used for years, but hookworms, roundworms, whipworms with antigen tests. So that's something. But really the parasite we overlook the most, and I can't even tell you, well, I can tell you in shelter animals how much we overlook it, but I can't yet tell you in pet dogs how much we overlook it, is tapeworms. Okay. We do not have a way to find tapeworms in our patients. So what we do is rely on the owner to tell us their dog has tapeworms, which is not the way any vet wants to make any diagnosis in practice. And yet we don't have another option because if it's not, you know, if the dog doesn't come in on the magic day, the proglottids are being shed, then how would you know? Right. And it, it seems like when a dog's infected with something like flea tapeworm, diplidium, they're going to shed proglottids maybe one day every two weeks, one day every three weeks. So we're not going to see that, but the owners will. I it's a special kind of feeling when you're staring at the medical record and you're like, I didn't see this, but the owner tells me they're there. And so you write your fecal float results and you go, per owner tapeworms, <laughs> you know, Absolutely. and just yeah. I always wrestle with that a little bit of like, I didn't see this, but right. I, I believe that they're there based on what I'm, what I'm hearing. Well, worst case scenario is when you tell them great news, no parasites on the fecal, you're doing everything right, you know, here's your next 12 months of preventive, let's keep it that way. And then the dog goes home and defecates and there's a mass of proglottids and the owner yeah. texts you a photo of the proglottids that they found in the feces that you just said that dog, you know, had no parasites. Yeah. So it's really until we get better diagnostics for tapeworms, we just almost have to assume they're there because we know from looking in, if you look directly in the intestinal tract, in shelters in the Midwest, over 50% of the dogs have tapeworms. Yeah. So if you look at pet dogs, I'm sure it's lower, but if you're not doing anything for tapeworms, I don't know how much lower it is, right? If we're not routinely um, trying to treat those dogs for tapeworms, so. Yeah, no, that, that's a great point. We're, um, Where's your research going from here? What are you, are you gonna, are you doing more samples? Are you doing, uh, yeah, walk me through that a little bit. Where do, you, where do you go from here? Well, we're in early discussion to try and figure out how to do a neighborhood survey. In other okay. words, targeting, like I said, those dogs that walk on their nightly route. Now we wish people would pick up the feces from their dog, but of course they don't, right? So, or they don't universally. And mm -hmm. so trying to get some of those samples, community samples, you might call them just community deposited samples, um, and look at that in several different across the US, again, several different um, geographies. And then we're also interested in soil samples, because 
specifically those whipworm eggs, once they're in the soil, they're going to be there and infective for years. And so we want to try and collect soil samples from dog parks and see, is there almost a permanent contamination that's set up with whipworm and roundworm eggs? And we can like a that. toxic waste spill, except, yeah. except yeah. with parasites. And, you know, it's not, it, it's not, it doesn't mean dog parks are bad or walking no. your dog is bad. It just means this is reality. And so we have to do something to help the dogs survive in the world they live in and thrive and not bring home potentially zoonotic infections. Mm. And yeah. You know, I, I, I'm always, I'm always wrestling with how to say things to pet owners. I guess that's kind of, that's kind of my, that's kind of my, my specialty and my, my, my passion is like, how do I, how do I tell this story so the pet owner hears it? And I, I just, I just, I think part of the thing that resonated so much with me, uh, with your research when it came out, was just this idea that I can say, if your dog goes to a dog park, we need to be religious about this, and, and about you know about about preventives. And I love it because uh, because it's true because I can back it up with research, and it and it gives the owners, um, it, it gives them an out. It's not like I'm not saying. Um, I don't trust that your yard is clean or that your house is clean. You know what I mean? In any way, it's like, oh, well, you should go to the dog park. But if you do, know that there's other dogs there, not your dogs, that can cause this. And we want your dog to be protected and have fun at the same time. And it just, it's the why is so important. And I feel like we don't, as a profession, we shy away from the why a lot. We don't like to say, hey, this is what heartworms are. And I don't want your dog to get them because it's scary. And I, I just feel like this is a non-scary, very good reason to say to pet owners, if your pet has this behavior, and I know that they do because you told me they go to the dog park, um, this is why I, I really want you to be religious about your preventive. And so I, I just, that spoke to me. It was just, it felt like such a nice little tool in my tool belt. And so, so thank you for doing that, first of all. Yeah, absolutely. No, I agree. If we can just encourage responsible pet ownership and responsible pet ownership means exercising, playing with your dog, which means going out in the world. But yeah. then of course, that also means intestinal parasite control along with heartworm prevention, vaccination, quality food, right? All the things we do to keep dogs healthy and happy. All right, I'm gonna, I'm gonna leave you with a hard question here. I want you to look into your crystal ball, which if yours is like mine, it's been haywiring for about 20, uh, the last eight months or so. I've, yeah. I've been able to see nothing. But um, parasitology 10 years from now, what, what does it look like? Um, have we, uh, are, are inter intestinal parasites and companion animals a thing of the past? Uh, are, 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 are diagnostic methods uh, significantly better? What, what do you see 10 years from now? Yeah, it's a great question. So um, I know that when I was in veterinary school and had decided to go into parasitology and was starting a PhD in parasitology, I was told, oh, don't do that. There's going to be no parasites in just a few years. Have you not heard of ivermectin? <laughs> I just thought, okay, but I think the parasites will find a way, right? No matter yeah. what we do, life finds a way. And so um, I think the same is true. So my, um, and my crystal ball might be tainted by the 2020, we're all just trying to survive. <laughs> but but um, I think the future is very bright in terms of parasite control and opportunities we have to keep pets safe from parasites. There's going to be better diagnostic tests. I'm confident of that, that we're going to find a way to find those 
tapeworms where they are to uh, make sure we know if a dog's infected and would benefit from treatment. But I think we're also facing real challenges in terms of antelmintic resistance. And so we're going to need new classes of parasite drugs, and we're going to need um, continued effort for diagnostic testing and treatment and just awareness by veterinarians that this isn't parasites aren't the thing you can kind of forget about because right. they're not going to take care of themselves. It's going right. to take veterinarians to take care of parasites. Okay. Lastly, I, you did this so beautifully, and this is something I hope that other people will follow suit. You made access to this research uh, so easy and just and, and allowed people to really kind of get what they needed. Can you share where people can find this information for their own review? Uh, and there's actually ways for them to kind of localize uh, the research that you've that you've done and kind of uh, tailor what that what they what they get. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so when we published the paper, we published it open access, which is pretty, I wouldn't say standard, but something we try to do for all research so that it is fully accessible by everybody in society. So the original research publication on the dog park study is available from the journal Parasites and Vectors. You just go to parasitesandvectors.com and the open access study is there. And if you want to nerd out on it and go into the science of it and dig down into the data and the stats, it's all published and available. You can also click on the supplemental tables and see for your community, right? So you can go in and look in Atlanta. You can go and look in Oklahoma City and see what were, what were the prevalence values for your local dog parks for your local dogs and really get a feel for that data. So that's available in great detail. And then there's also just some one-page summaries and some continuing education articles that practices can use with their staff, with their um, technicians to really start to understand the data. And that's available through Clinician's Brief. I'll link all that stuff down in the description of the show. So anybody who's interested uh, and listening out here, you should be able to, to find that easily. Dr. Lil, thank you so much for being here. I always enjoy uh, our conversations and I really appreciate your time. Thanks for sharing. Oh, thank you. This was great. Gang, and that's our episode. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you got some uh, something good out of it that you can use in your exam room communications. Thanks to Alanko. Thanks to Dr. Susan Little. And thanks to you for being here. Guys, I look forward to chatting with you again soon. Be well. Take care. Bye.